Hi everyone, welcome to Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. I'm Langdon DeMint. And I'm Julian Taylor. And welcome to our podcast. Hello and welcome to Two Bald Guys having a bit of a ramble and talking a bit about safety at the same time. Uh, my name's Julian Taylor and I'm joined by my follically challenged, apart from his immense eyebrows, friend. I, f- I feel, you know, right quick, this is totally a quick detour. We need to address the eyebrow thing because you're not the first person. The eyebrows have not changed. If anything, they've gotten smaller. I think it's because last year, so Derek, I used to have, I mean, I've been bald for 20 plus years, but I had, I was using a different razor, you know, one of the tall ones. Within a, a little over a year ago, I got this thing called a pit bull is the greatest discovery ever. And it's straight head. So now I do it every day. So you pretty much, and this is long, like it's time to do it today. So I think that is why the eyebrows haven't changed. They've always been this beautiful and bountiful. It's just the hair is less. I have to say, Langdon, they are mighty impressive. I, I, I've got, I, I think the expression two caterpillars is coming to mind here. Um, <laughs> or if, you, if you're old enough, if you remember Thunderbirds, yep. um, I, think, I think we could do a great Thunderbirds impression. I mean, this this is them, you know. I don't yeah, think be proud. Be proud of them. Yeah, yeah. But Langdon Demet, sorry, should have uh, got in it. We just felt like we needed to have that quick discussion. Bit of a ramble, yeah. And 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 today we we we're joined by a particularly hairy Scotsman as well. So Derek McGlashan, welcome to the pod. Really good to see you. Thanks, Julian. How you doing? I'm good. Um, Derek, do you want to tell us a bit about? who you are, your background, some of the things you've done, just to introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. So Derek Glash and I run a sustainability consulting firm called Saltire Sustainability Limited, uh, based in Scotland, as you might be able to guess from the accent, albeit work can take me all over. Uh, And I'm a non-executive director of a harbour authority uh, in Scotland and a charity. Uh, so between that uh, diversity, it keeps me on my toes. Um, between new work assignments, uh, introducing me to different people and uh, bringing new perspectives, and then hopefully sharing some useful perspectives uh, as a non-exec uh, to keep those organisations running on the straight and narrow and taking all the opportunities they can. Um, most of my working career has been in infrastructure, predominantly ports, to some extent, energy networks and uh, renewables, and who's not into decarbonisation these days. Um, And I've had various different tasks over the years from counter-terrorist security to safety. And uh, I've overseen safety environment, regulatory aspects and sustainability for a major port company for a good chunk of my career. And I, I guess some of the experiences we'll touch on today will have come from that and, and others from the other various interests I've had along the way. Cool. Thanks for that. And, and we've, we've known each other for a, for a, for a fair old time now. Um, but it was, it was a LinkedIn post that kind of triggered this, this episode, which was um, all about what, what to do. I'm going to use some English kind of language here. Uh, rather than American language, but what what to do when the regulator rocks up? Um, so if a regulator arrives at your organisation, 
actually what to do. And and it's it's interesting because I've been involved with safety for a long time and I hadn't really thought about this in, in that much depth. And I think it's a really interesting subject. Um, so I thought it'd be great to get you on and we can talk about what we can kind of do to preempt it. And and, and if, you, if you're happy to share it, maybe some of the interesting stories you've got of situations when regulators did arrive on site. Yeah, so I guess... You know, there are, there are a couple of things here, and that's um, your interaction with a regulator might not be on site. Um, I, I've um, I've come across social media posts that have led to an interaction with a regulator um, that perhaps the employer wasn't too impressed at, um, and uh, that's resulted in questions, and then someone turning up and chapping on the door and saying, "I'd like to learn more." And of course, sometimes you get arranged visits. Um, you know, back when I started in this game a long time ago, uh, you could schedule visits with your local safety inspector. They would come and wander around the site and you could have a really meaningful discussion about, you know, what can we do to improve this? And, and they might say things like, well, I'm not very comfortable with that. I'd like to see that fixed when I come back in a fortnight or two months or what have you. These days, resourcing and so on and so forth, tend to find that interactions you have are either unannounced inspections following a theme, uh, or they may be arranged visits uh, because something's happened, or um, uh, because there's a topic that uh, is politically important at that time. For example, during COVID, various regulators visited businesses to make sure rules were being followed. and you can bump into regulators at events. It wouldn't be the first time something's happened following a discussion between an employee and a regulator at a social event that results in um, various head scratching thereafter. Um, so the context as to where you can have that interaction these days is not just limited to your workplace. And of course, it could be any one of your employees that could have that interaction uh, because regulators can, can speak to virtually anybody. And through the power of LinkedIn in particular, you, you could be having all sorts of discussions with people you don't necessarily fully understand who it is you're talking to or, or about. Uh, so always worth bearing that in mind. And, and, you know, without waiting for you to ask the question, what is a regulator? You've mentioned safety, uh, but of course there are regulators that cover all sorts of other topics, be it environment, uh, fiscal regulators, you know, the tax man to, to be country neutral. Um, but uh, you know, it could be it could be customs officials, it could be border control, it could be um, various security regulators, um, be they widely known about or not widely known about, um, you know, uh, having come from the ports industry, there's a there's a strong security interest, a bit like aviation. So there are all sorts of regulators that you might not have come across, um, regulators for animal health, waste, um, the fire brigade, for example, often often overlooked, but they can turn up and, and, and say, hold on, this room's not big enough for the number of people you've got here or this establishment needs more fire exits or or what have you. So a regulator can come in all sorts of guises 
usually they carry a warrant card of some description or 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 the like and that's um that's perhaps a bit of a giveaway as to something we might come on to in a minute they're not always obvious though are they they might have a warrant card but they're not, they're not always obvious are they in terms of sort of actually being able to just recognize them on site if they if they if they just physically walk onto site so that is a really good point julian because i think over the last five years and particularly during and since covid everyone's a little bit more relaxed in the dress code i mean look at me five years ago i'd have had a shirt and tie on uh, with a jacket um because that was the that was the done thing and uh you know i i turn up to meetings and you know there'll be someone in shorts and a slogan t-shirt which uh, you know five years ago that would have been unheard of um so your regulator may not may not be wearing a fluorescent yellow jacket that says the name of the regulator on the back um so uh, and that in itself might not mean they are who they say they are but we'll maybe come back to that one a bit further down the line so the uh, the first point in the in the real book in the rule book is who are they and verify that and um you know that that can be as simple as checking a warrant card um or uh, and any any inspector worth of salt is going to say i understand it okay that might involve a little bit of googling to find out the switchboard um of their office and phone them to corroborate it is who who they say they are um and i have had uh, i've had people turn up and refuse to confirm their identity just say that they're a regulator let let me in um in which case the answer is sorry but no you know we need to we need to know who you are and that doesn't always go down very well but you know it works it works two ways i was i was going to say what one of the things that 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 i, I thought was was interesting talking to you when we talked about this was as, as a safety professional or as a I suppose as a, as a professional within, I'm, I'm going to take this broader than just safety. Cause as you said, there's lots of different regulators. Um, how do you, how do you sort of train and prepare an organization, not just for the, the, the visits we know about, but, but so they are prepared for those ad hoc things that might happen. Um, what, what can, what can you be doing to sort of proactively be ready for that? So one of the things I've done in the past is to ensure that there's material available to help people in, in a situation such as that. Generally, your front line is your reception desk. Um, and often that there's someone at that, um, at that place. Uh, though, you know, increasingly you, you might find a reception desk unmanned in an intercom. But anyway, who, whoever is that first point of contact needs to know who, how to deal with all sorts of things. So 25 years ago, the key thing for a receptionist was to know how to deal with a bomb threat, for example. And you would have a checklist next to your next to your desk that said, you know, write down any uh, sounds in the background, you know, what was the accent like, what words were used, you know, and lots of other prompts. And I still see that from time to time, strangely, when I check into hotels or, or what have you. Um, uh, so some of those elements are still hardwired. Um, so whoever is on that front uh, that front line really needs to know who is the person to call when they arrive. Yeah. Uh, and given our opening about pretty much anyone could end up 
facing a regulator and having to to speak to them you you probably want everyone in the organization knowing who is the right person to call or which function is the right function to call um and you know generic guidance would be you want one of the more senior people on site to be to be that interface for a variety of reasons it reassures the regulator that the senior person's got nothing to hide um and um generally they would hopefully have had some training in how to deal with regulators and other similar situations where you've got to speak to someone that you maybe don't know. Um, and I think uh, that that preparation piece doesn't need to take a long time. Um, you know, the, the LinkedIn uh, discussion that, uh, that prompted this uh, webinar I think the training session we did was 25 minutes or thereabouts, uh, you know, per per session. So it's um, it's a relatively minor investment, and with it comes a fairly memorable discussion of a variety of things that tends to stimulate debate. And it's that stimulation of debate that sticks in your mind for, you know, should that occur again? And actually, you know, when when you do speak to people about this, it's it's remarkable how often they have had some kind of an interaction with a regulator that they either weren't prepared for or or someone was able to step in and, and help who was prepared. Um, and just having that little bit of preparation builds the confidence and means it's a more effective interaction, both for the regulator and for the person that's having to deal with it. And, you know, you hit on something there, I think, that's worth, especially in the States, a lot of times there, if you haven't had discussions with your employees, knowing how much is too much is not enough when, let's just say it's OSHA, you know, whomever it is uh, that you discuss or that you show, that's, that's tough because if you haven't been trained, you think, oh no, you know, the feds are here, what do I do? And you know, or, you know, if it's states, whatever, but you think I just, I need to show, be very transparent. And, you know, that's not saying you don't, but there is, there are ways to maneuver that. So you're not showing too much or not enough, but just ensuring that people, you know, your employees understand that's something I think is, it's an oversight a lot of times here. Um, so I think that's an excellent point. I, I think it's a great point, Langdon, because it, 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 we have to remember that these People calling are not our friends, um, and so that you know they, they don't need to know that you were at the pub last night or that you um, you know your best friends over here or you've got a Labrador or or what have you. Um, it's important to remain focused on whatever that whatever the topic is, and answering in a clear and concise way is important to the benefit of everybody. If you wander off topic, you tend to reduce clarity and that generates more questions. And so ultimately, often you have to pay when a regulator is on site and you're paying by the hour. And so anytime, also anytime you're speaking to them, you're not doing your core activity of making widgets or overseeing a global multinational or whatever it is and you know that that costs time efficiency and, and, and money so the more focused you can be the better that transaction is for all concerned 
I suppose sort of think sort of moving on, on from that as well. There's a couple of questions we talked through. I suppose the first one was what you, what you should say and what you shouldn't say, or what people should say or what people shouldn't say. Um, what are the thoughts around that area, Derek? Well, I guess you know picking up on that being focused. So answer the question, stick to the facts, and try and avoid either supposition or personal opinion. Um, I I had an interview with um, with a health and safety inspector, and he phoned and said, you know, can we have a discussion? There's been this incident in another port somewhere. It's resulted in a death, and we'd like to speak to you to find out how how you perform that activity. And so myself and a colleague spoke to him. He arrived. Uh, you know, we talked him through what we do. The material we handled was in a different format to the material involved in the incident, and so exactly that event would be exceptionally unlikely to occur. Uh, in, in the context of the organisation I worked for. Um, however, that, despite being explained, that didn't really land uh, with the inspector. And uh, at the end, he said, right, I'm now going, to, uh, now going to call you as a witness for our prosecution. You'll be our expert witness. And I said, oh, hold on just a minute here. You know, you, you've asked for, how, you know, you've asked us how we do something. That isn't exactly the same. It's not directly comparable. Let's say it's the same widget, but it's a smaller widget. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't weigh as much. It's not as long. They don't, they don't get stacked as high. Uh, and so, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in is very different. Uh, we're dealing with different organizations on different trade routes. Um, and you asked if you could come and have a chat. You know, he didn't say we were under investigation and he didn't say I'm looking for an expert witness. Uh, and he said, but actually, you'd be really good as an expert witness because, you know, you've explained it clearly and, you know, you've shown the controls that you have in place. And, and this other organization didn't have those controls in place. And I said, and what happens if I stand up there as a peer? As an expert witness against one of my peers, when we've been working as an industry to work together to solve safety problems and environmental problems, learn from each other, explain when something's gone wrong, unpick it a bit, share good practice so that we all get better. If I then stand up and act as a, a prosecution witness, then all of that goodwill is going to evaporate and all of that sharing across the sector will stop. Uh, and so that in itself was a bit of a learning experience for me, was to really understand the motivation before having the conversation. It was prearranged. You know, there was nothing that was perceived as being negative. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the call, he, he's, he slid his notes of the meeting across the table and said, you now need to sign this as your, as your sworn statement. And I said, I'm not signing that. You didn't tell me that that's what this was. We, you, you said we were going to have a chat. And it got really quite heated. Uh, it went up the chain at, uh, at his organization and uh, legal letters were exchanged. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, we solved it in the end, but uh, and it didn't involve me standing in court, thankfully. 
Um, so understanding the motivation is really important. And look, sometimes that's really obvious because they're here because something really unfortunate has happened. And they are understandably trying to unpick and get to, you know, get to the bottom of it to understand what went wrong. As are lots of different people. Um, and, and that in itself can be quite difficult, but we'll maybe come on to that bit later. It's um, it's interesting because just listening to you talking there as well, in my simple mind, I think we've talked about this before, we, there should be, there should be a, a positive working relationship with regulators, shouldn't there? There should be a relationship where we, where we could actually say, can you come on site and, and help us as an organisation with, with X, Y, Z? But again, when we talked about that, you've you you felt there were issues around trying to build that positive relationship. I think I, I think um, particularly in the safety sphere, but actually most regulators in the UK certainly are increasingly resource constrained, and so like like many others, they have to justify their time, and uh, from a safety perspective. If uh, an inspector spots a, a failure or an infringement, that can trigger something called fee for intervention. And then for every hour that anyone from the HSE is working, the health and safety executive is, is working on that topic on your site or elsewhere, you have to pay an hourly rate. And it's a pretty steep hourly rate. Um, and you you know, you're not, it's not going to go down well with your boss if you say, I invited this inspector around to talk about, I don't know, workplace transport uh, and to share the good practice that we're doing uh, and how we separate our pedestrians and our vehicles. And while they were here, they spotted some lifting equipment that they didn't like at the back of the warehouse. Um, and so they've decided that they're going to investigate that. And so, you know, they've issued a fee for intervention notice and the, the clock is now ticking and the bill's building up. Um, that's, that's not going to go down well. Um, and uh, it's it, it makes that really quite difficult. Um, and not long after that came in, I was speaking to one of the directors of the health and safety executive and I said, you know, this is my concern, my concern about this change, this specific change is that it doesn't actually rate, you know, bring in that much money for the health and safety executive. Um, and it, it really actively discourages partnership working on site. At an industry body level that it doesn't stop partnership working, but on site where there is that risk of someone saying, well, I don't like the look of that. Uh, I'm going to dig a bit further. Um, that's a real, that's a real risk. And it's, you know, I think similar, it's one of those here, there's a lot of restraints, um, you know, around, well, let's say OSHA, for example, they're uh, usually understaffed and you have so much focus. So you already have the focus of what they, you know, the repeat offenders, certain things they know they're going to tackle, I'll say. And then you have your whistleblower, other issues, but same, it's, it's very challenging to, to want to have that type of relationship we're used to, you could call, I feel like more so than you hear that you're at least you used to hear about that more, more in the past than now and try to have them, you know, come and do mock inspections. And you, you know, if it's something obviously 
like serious, serious. Okay. They're probably going to go ahead, but they're going to work with you through it. It's whereas now it's because of the time constraints, the limited resources, it's hit the certain. And then there's some industry, I'm curious your thoughts with this. There's some industry here in the States, at least that, you know, healthcare for one, typically OSHA, for example, doesn't have a lot of expertise. So they don't do quite as much as you would manufacturing. And that's, you know, one of the most dangerous, dangerous workplaces. I mean, it, it's, it's very challenging when you, you want to have a, a body in theory, you know, if, I mean, I get that. What do you do for a living? Oh, health and safety. Oh, OSHA. <laughs> no timeout, not, not OSHA. But that's, that's unfortunate because really, I mean, the, the point of it is there for a, you know, trying to help, but it's become very, no matter how you view it, a little, I feel like negative because of the police, the street, you know, and I, that's a, I think that's a challenge of overcoming. I think it's a really good point, Langdon. And, you know, if you think about what those of us who've been working in safety and corporations over the past 10 to 15 years in particular, have been focusing on building trust, on improving culture, uh, building openness, um, focusing on systemic failures as opposed to personal failures, trying to avoid um, jumping to conclusions and making accusations. And if you contrast that to the way regulators work, they're motivated not only to find out why something went wrong, they're also motivated to find out who did what to make it wrong. And whilst actually a major a major underplay in safety is accountability, but I mean genuine accountability, not pinning the tail on you know whomever you you feel is appropriate. Um, you know, you need that openness for people to be accountable for their actions. And if you don't have that openness and just culture, as it's increasingly called, then you 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 won't have the accountability the, the accountability that goes with it. Um, and so you see those two tracks, you know, I mean, hop, for example, is a, you know, is, is a, one of many themes that, that are doing the rounds at the minute. Um, and it, if you investigate an incident in, in that kind of style, um, that's very different to this style that your regulator is going to take, um, cause they want to know who they can prosecute. And you know, to me, that's one of the big challenges. I was, I've talked to a friend of mine who does a lot around failures and um, hop and just really uh, human performance as a whole. And there is a lot of, a lot of organizations that I think that is the way to kind of transition the thinking, but the majority, I would dare say, aren't to that point yet. So then you think, what does that actually look like from a, you know, I'm, I'm getting this from corporate, which it should reflect down, right? But it, it doesn't oftentimes. And it, it's just to your point, when, when the first thing a regulator, at least in the States, a lot of times what they hear is, can I say training records? Can I say your records? And that's because it's the easiest thing to document, but it's also the easiest thing to pinpoint. And that's, it's two different messages, you know, trying to converge, but I don't know that it does. It's, it's a it's a challenge. I feel like we we see more and more here, at least. Yeah, I mean, we're moving off of the, the regulator piece, but I suppose it is all related. You know, procedures will often talk about competence. Well, you then need to evidence that competence, 
not not everything is a training course. So um, I had a I had an employee who caught the back of his heel on a gate. He was closing the gate. He gave it a gave it a pull and walked away. And as the gate followed him, it caught him up and caught him on the back of his heel. And he ended up off work. And uh, it was sore. It caused him a bit of damage. Um, and uh, the insurance company came in to investigate. And I spent a lot of time dealing with insurance companies, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and uh, the insurance assessor said, do you have a risk assessment for closing the gate? I said, no, of course not have a risk assessment for closing a gate because that's just something that you assume people know how to do. Wrong use of words. Assumption is the uh, mother of all. And uh, so, so we had quite a long discussion about whether you really genuinely did need a risk assessment to close a gate. And, uh, and, and if we were going to get to that level of risk assessments for everything, opening the door to the restroom, opening the door to the canteen um you know uh picking up a tray to walk to the to the uh, counter you know and picking up a knife and fork then your employees would really never spend any time at work they'd spend their entire time reading risk assessments um and uh, b would never be able to remember the content of any risk assessment because they were just overloaded with so much information that um, someone would expect them to know if something went wrong um, again, you know, eventually the in, insurance, insurance uh, investigator was kind of grudgingly accepted that, you know, the front gate at his house didn't have a risk assessment for the postman, for example, and actually this was no different. But anyway, um, that was uh, that, that was that. But, I, I, you know, we do often shoot ourselves in the foot um, when when we have management systems. Uh, because we think about, you know, how can we cover ourselves? Oh, well, add in, well, you, well, add this word competence in here. You must be competent to do whatever, or you must have been trained to do such and such. Uh, and then, as you say, where are the training records for? Well, no one gets trained for that because everyone knows how to open a gate, for example. Um, oh, but your procedure says that you're trained. So, um, you know, that, that there is that wider piece here of let's not shoot ourselves in the foot when we when we create these procedures um, and let's make them understandable so that people can digest them and understand what they actually mean rather than being you know 60 page document for each individual task they do but i digress marginally it's, it's interesting though what what you were talking about there though you talked about covering yourself and and, and actually, the regulators are. I think it's a really good point you make, which is the regulators are really their behaviours almost drives the opposite of what we've been desperately trying to achieve for so long. Because we've talked about loads on the podcast, we talk about the blame game, and as soon as you start blaming individuals and you start trying to lay the blame at somebody's door, their behaviours will change, and they're going to start trying to cover stuff up. They're going to start trying to hide stuff. Um, because they don't want to get caught. Um, it's the classic aviation versus medicine again, isn't it? Where yeah. aviation, we want to learn from what's gone wrong. We're not going to necessarily blame individuals, but we want to learn from what's gone wrong. Whereas medicine, it's we're going to sue you. So, so actually, everybody just covers it up. They don't. They don't want to say anything. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, sort of listening to you talking about that. Um, 
another another couple of interesting and these are kind of little niche kind of things but but one of them to pick up on you you talked about an example of i mean not a lot of people it's they're kind of going out of fashion but handing over business cards and you, you you've got an interesting story to tell about that haven't you yeah so a colleague of mine um handed over his business card so hold on before i tell you that story Let's let's go back to, if you like, the rules of engagement of speaking to a regulator. So once you've verified who they are, that's great. Um, you need to find someone that goes around the site with them. Um, and ideally, that's the same person so that they see everything. So you can help them um, see what they need to see from the site's perspective. And you also understand all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that they've been looking at and who they've been speaking to and so on and so forth. Um, and that's really helpful in, in being able to see what your defense might need to be. And also to pick up the nuggets that maybe don't end up in a written report or don't get brought back to you by someone else where they've maybe said, um, oh, I like what's happening over there. That looks that looks really good, which might be followed with, I don't like what's happening over there because of X, Y, and Z. So what's happening over on the left, which is good, What's happening on the right is not so good. What can you learn from to make what's happening on the right better, for example? So so that's that. And the second thing is, do you need that corroboration? Do you need a second person there too, you know, to cover for the nip to the loo or the phone's ringing or whatever it is? Um, so when someone wanders around, if they're any good, they will be asking lots of questions, not just to the person showing them around, because they'll have clocked that you're the one who's had the training uh, and you know, you're know you the head of safety or the director of the site or what have you. So they'll also want to speak to you know, the person working the molding machine or the, you know, pouring the you know, molten uh, iron into the, into the, uh, the form or whatever it is. And uh, they'll often say, you know, and who are you? And they'll write a name down, et cetera. And so there's a tendency for particularly management level people to say, well, here's my card. Saves you writing it down. Oh, thanks. Great. Well, so there are a few issues with that. One is they then have direct contact details for someone else. And I, I prefer to manage these relationships through one person so that, you know, if there's follow-up questions, it goes to that same person. And it fits with the bigger picture of knowing what's happening, helping to see the direction that the regulator's moving in. And it also means that you can build up a bit of rapport with that regulator and hopefully build up some trust and transparency between, between you and the regulator. And so again, that goes back to what we said at the start, working both ways to be more efficient for both parties. I'm aware of someone who handed over a business card and the um, event that was being investigated ended up in court and there was something um it appears at some point ended up on the back of that business card and so on the stand he was asked was this your business card yes do you remember handing this business card over to um inspector x y or z yes and would you like to explain to the court what it says on the back of the business card can't remember exactly what it said, but it was worse to the effect of this place is really dangerous. And why did you write that on the back of your business card? Well, I didn't write that on the back of my business card. That's not my handwriting. Well, why did you give your business card to the to Inspector X? 
Um, that was a bit of a, you know, heated moment for the person stood in the stand. And they were adamant they didn't write that. It would seem unlikely. Um, so be careful what you hand over. Is the uh, the moral of that story. Um, and actually, I don't like to hand, I don't like anyone to hand anything over. I like that all to be coordinated back through that central person so that you know what has been released, which version, you know, it's easy to have issues with version control. So let's make sure it's the most up-to-date version or the right one for the site or what have you. Um, and again, if you know everything that's been released, you, that helps you understand what what's being investigated, what the thought process is going to be of that regulator, how you might need to counter that or help them by supplying more information to provide the right context to explain everything as well. I've, I've just got an image the other way around, Beric, of, of, of the inspector going and talking to a member of the workforce and, and, and the guide standing behind them with a sign saying, don't say a word. <laughs> and again, I, you know, that, I wouldn't be saying don't say anything. However, they, sh they would, hopefully, if it had been my organisation, have had that 20-minute, 25-minute sit down and a, and a chat over a cup of coffee and maybe a biscuit if they're lucky that says, be focused, stay on topic, answer the question, stick to the facts, avoid perception, don't spread rumour. I think in the US it would be a donut as opposed to a biscuit, but I think that's that's really sage advice. It's good advice, and and again, I think I think it was that that awareness of actually just make the broader workforce aware of what they should do in that situation because it's it's like you say it's, it can be one word out of place, can't it? Uh, it's taken uh, you know I've been involved in investigations where it's taken months to unpick a slip. In, in an interview and it's not deliberate it's just you know it's a misunderstanding and picking up actually on Langdon's point about um, expertise in sectors um, having spent a lot of time in the port sector it's it's not a sector that a lot of inspectors understand a lot of them will have come from or spend a lot of time on construction sites for example because you know construction is a real focus um, from an incident perspective and Whilst you can get very serious incidents in ports, thankfully they're quite rare, but generally if something goes wrong, it's big equipment, so it can go wrong quite seriously. Um, and, you know, when they turn up often, you know, well, like all of us, when you, when you meet a scene, you turn up and you think about what the, uh, what you're looking at in the context of your life history. And that life history might be, relevant to the sector you're in or it might not be and uh, you know if you're coming from a um, construction background and bringing that into an operational port for example then it might be easy to see analogs but they're not analogs that are really there um, or you might apply you know a warehouse situation with discharging a ship well they're very different um, you know uh, on a ship, the master of the ship, the captain is in charge. That, you know, that's it. Full stop. They are, you know, the ultimate being on the vessel, and uh, they have full, you know, full autonomy to do everything from conduct weddings to tell you to get off. Um, and so, 
you know that that's often not you know that might not be understood um, because you'll find people from the port or tenants of the port on board that vessel and so it's very easy to say that well because that person was next to that person you know you're in charge well no it's it's the shipping company that's in charge for example amongst amongst other things so um yeah it's uh, it's that packaging of information to set context that's really critical to make sure that you fully understand what's going on and and if you've got that one-on-one relationship you can help guide educate and set that context I was going to say, and one one other really weird situation that you talked about was somebody impersonating an inspector, which I found mind-boggling, really. Well, again, I, I do tend to trot this story out uh, from time to time, um, particularly when I'm when when I'm speaking to people about how to deal with regulators. I I was on on one of my sites, uh, and the phone rang, um, and. Someone had appeared at reception and they claimed to be a health and safety inspector and that they were um, demanding, uh, you know, there was no ifs or buts about it. They were demanding to speak to the most senior person on site. And that day, at that time, that just happened to be me, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, and, And I was in the middle of something. And so I turned to my colleague and I literally just finished about six weeks before giving you know going through the whole company on how to deal with regulators uh, and so my colleague uh, said yeah yeah i can i can do that i said go down find out who he is make him a cup of tea he said make him a cup of tea i said make him a cup of tea keep him sweet oh i don't know i want to make him a cup of tea i said i said look <laughs> he's still a human being Chances are he's been stood out there and he's frozen cold. So offer him a cup of tea or coffee or something and uh, I'll be down with you in a couple of minutes as soon as I get this finished. So got this finished, got downstairs. Um, he had his, you know, his cup of tea had just arrived. And uh, and therefore, I presumed, going back to my earlier uh, comment about assumptions being the uh, start of all screw-ups, uh, I presumed that my colleague had gone through the process of uh, verifying his identity. Anyway, he had on fluorescent jacket that said that had the health and safety executive crest on his chest, and he had a hard hat under his arm that had the health and safety executive logo on it, um, and uh, and he had a, a badge on a lanyard um, that had his name and uh, and the health and safety's logo on it, but something didn't quite fit, and he was asking some very odd questions uh and he kept saying things like you know well, we're we're used to working to you know used to working with you we want, we want to undertake some surveillance operations and i need a list of all of your tenants and how many people work for everyone and i said i can't give you that oh no well, health and safety executive i've got to know that uh, anyway he then changed the subject bizarrely to cars and talked about his brand new five series bmw company car outside well, that really set that really set the alarm bells <laughs> ringing at that point um and uh, anyway push came to shove 
uh, I asked him a couple of pointed questions and he looked at his watch and said, oh, I've just realized I'm late for an interview. I need to go and, uh, you know, I need to disappear. And so I turned to my colleague and said, um, get his registration number and see if you can track him through the CCTV as he leaves site, etc. And uh, I went and phoned health and safety executive and said, we've had this guy in. We've captured some CCTV images of, you know, his face and, uh, you know, his car registration number and so on and so forth. And uh, I don't think he was a genuine article. And the person I spoke to was like, what do you mean? Of course he was. He must be, you know. What, what would possibly make you think that he wasn't? So, well, a couple of things that he said just weren't right. He wasn't asking questions that were appropriate. Um, and uh, anyway, after... A bit of investigating it turned out he was someone from the local area who ran a safety consultancy and um, it's unclear what his motivation was um, but uh, there had been other instances a bit further afield of uh, of people being told that there were infringements and and therefore they were subject to a fee for intervention i mentioned that before and that that needed to be paid in cash at that time. So we didn't see that person back on site, funnily enough. Good. Good. Derek, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, we, I think we're kind of coming up to time. Um, we'll have to get you back again and talk about your broader sort of experience. But thanks for coming on. Thanks for, I think, again, it's just a, it's a bit of a different subject, but it just is, is great to make people think about actually what can I do in my organisation just to to sort of make sure we're, we're tied down on this and we are ready if somebody does rock up at si- up, up on site? So absolutely. Um, so so thanks for your time this afternoon, Langdon. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you wrap us up in your inimitable and I said that quite well, didn't I? Inimitable style. No, thanks. Thank you, Derek, for joining us. Um, it is something I think that's very very relevant, even if organizations don't think about it, just having that conversation. So um, we definitely appreciate that. But with that, as we go about the rest of our weeks, since it's the start of our weeks, remember everyone to stay healthy and safe and watch each other's back out there. Thanks, everyone. Everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of Two Bald Guys Talking Safety. Please follow and subscribe to wherever you stream your favorite podcast or visit us at evotix.com. And if you want to see how follically challenged we really are, come and check us out on YouTube. If you've got value from the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts. And in the review section of this podcast, if you could leave us a review or a rating, that would be great. And as always, everyone, while you're going about your days, and about your normal lives, stay safe out there and watch each other's back. <laughs>